I know I've mentioned uh, fairly recently that Becky and I have done our you know, fair share of traveling over the last few years. She enjoys it. I enjoy being with her wherever that is, and it doesn't typically matter to me too much where that is. It's just those final stages of getting it all together that, that is a challenge for us. And it seems like no matter how early we, we start packing and getting ready, it's those last moments that are really stressful. I know this doesn't happen at your house, but it happens at our house, okay? And having lived with Becky for now, um, next week will be 42 years next week. I may be a slow learner, but I have learned some of the patterns and the procedures and the system of getting safely launched on a trip. It took some learning because it always happens the same way. It happens like this. I, I load the bags in the car, and then I'm in the car with the engine running, and she's finishing up doing whatever it is that she's doing in the house. I'm now racing the engine, and she eventually gets to the car, and we, we take off for the airport. And as we are en route to the airport, here come the list of questions. It is always the same. I know exactly what it's going to be. And it goes something like this. Did you get the, did you get the umbrella? Yes. Did you, did you get our phone chargers? Yes. Did you get that neck pillow thing? In case we, yes. Did you, did you get my carry-on bag put in the back of the car? Yes. So after all these years, I've got the questions down, and I, I know what she's going to ask. And then, then we go to the airport, and we get through security, and I know exactly what she's going to do. She's going to go to the little shop, and, and she's going to buy a ladies' magazine of some kind, and she's going to get a bottle of water to take it on the plane. It is as predictable as the sun coming up tomorrow. And then we get all settled in our seat, uh, and, and get all buckled up, and she starts to browse through this new magazine she has. A few minutes later, we've taken off, and we're up in the air, and now she's ready to put the magazine down, and she's going to pick up the book that she's brought with, with her, because she always takes some book that she's reading. And here comes, to me, the final question that will be the test for how well I have prepared for this trip. She's going to look at me, and she's going to ask, you don't know what I'm going to say, do you? I love it when you get nervous on the front row. <laughs> she's going to look at me and she's going to say, do you have a highlighter? <laughs> Is that the truth? Yes, it's the truth. Don't sit there and act like that. <laughs> You're in church. You've got to tell the truth, girl. Come on. But for many years, somehow that was the detail that I missed and I, I didn't have one. I have to let her know. No, I don't have a highlighter. I'm sorry. And once I discovered that that question was added to the list of questions that were going to come every time, I finally got smart. And I went to the office supply place, and I loaded up on hot pink, yellow, blue, and green highlighters. All right? And I put them in my travel bag that I've carried on with me. Well, the trip finally arrived where we went through all that rigmarole I've just described. We got seated on the plane, and we're up in the air, and she asked me, do you have a highlighter? And I'll never forget how proud I was that day when I opened up that carry-on bag. And I pulled out a hot pink highlighter, and I said, you bet, baby, just for you. And she looked at me with that sweet smile that reminded me that she is spoiled. 
Because that's what we do, men. We spoil the woman we love. And all the ladies in the house said, I expected more enthusiastic response than that. Come on, girls. So Becky gets settled back in her seat, and she's reading and highlighting her book. Have you ever picked up a book that somebody else has highlighted? I have. It's so interesting to me to see what another person has highlighted. What, what, what got their interest? What, 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 uh, what piqued their attention? Or what spoke to them? Uh, what resonated with them? Because what I've certainly learned is what speaks to one person, even in a book, is not necessarily going to have the same effect on the next person. Most every week I, I have some folks who will send me some, they will email some devotional that they've read and uh, they want me to read it and sometimes I read it and can be inspired. I, mean, I, always, I don't mean sometimes, I always read it, but sometimes I, I can read it and be inspired and I can tell why it was significant to the one who sent it. And then I have to be honest, at other times I read it and I have to say to myself, I guess that's nice, but that ain't doing nothing for me at all. I, I really don't know. And so what I've learned through that is what, might, what one person might highlight isn't necessarily what the next person would highlight. Becky often reads articles that she puts on my desk and wants me to enjoy it or be impacted as much as she was. And, and honestly, m most often I, I truly am. But there are those times when I have to say, well, Obviously, it, it meant more to her than, than it does to me. She got something more out of this than I'm getting it. It's entirely possible that you might skip right over or pay little to no attention to that which somebody else would highlight because it had meaning for them. However, church, when God highlights something in his holy word, we ought to pay attention to it. So I want you to turn with me to the, that well-known passage called Hebrews 11 that many affectionately call the hall of faith. Hebrews 11. Essentially, what's happening here in this chapter, when you browse through it and you read it, and I know many of you are extremely familiar with it, is that God is highlighting certain stories and certain people from the Old Testament that were obviously important and significant to him. He got out the highlighter and said, yeah, this one is important. I, 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 this is something I would put that highlighter pen on. And here's what I have to tell you. Some of these names in this hall of faith of Hebrews 11 are not necessarily people that I would have chosen to put in the hall of faith. My highlighting here does not match God's highlighting, if I'm honest. And if I were highlighting Old Testament stories and people, I, I would most likely have chosen a, a different, at least somewhat of a different cast of characters. But here's what we know. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And further, church, he sees things and sees people not necessarily the way we see them. His vantage point is unique. His value system for that which is important is distinctive, distinctive to him. So once you look at your Bible or on the screen, and, and let's look at this list of names and situations, and I want to just take a few minutes to identify, we'll see how many we get done, two or three folks that God has highlighted that it's very, very likely 
you and I might not have. We might have just slid right over their name and not included them or inducted them into the hall of faith. I'm going to start in Hebrews 11. I'm going to start down at verse 31. So find it, Hebrews 11, verse 31. Several names have been mentioned earlier in the chapter, but let's start at 31, Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute, well, she would not have made my list. She probably wouldn't have made your list either. I can tell you right now. She, she's obviously disqualified, right? But God said, put her in the hall of faith. So it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? Oh, it would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. And then he kind of does an overview. He says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They, they, they ruled with justice, and they received what God had promised them. They, some of them shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire. And note this. And some of them escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some of them were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And then others were killed with the sword. If you look back in verse 34, we saw that some escaped the sword. And here in verse 37, others were killed by the sword. And yet in God's eyes, both were counted as people of faith. I find that extremely interesting. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. You know what? They were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. The standout verse for me here is verse 32. For in it you see the highlighting God has done and you see the people, the people who had gained his unique attention for some aspect of their life. For example, when you look at verse 32, you see Gideon. Okay, Gideon ought to be on the list. He's the guy who wins the battle, you remember, with 300 people. He started out with 32,000, and, and, and God keeps culling away and, and uh, cutting down the, the, the numbers until it's down to 300. And it seemed like an impossible task, but God gave them victory. But then you look further in this list of names in verse 32, if you can in, stay there in, in your Bible. It includes Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And all of those are names that I would never have highlighted. I just, I, I just didn't get it. And all of these stories come from the book of Judges. Let me, let me tell you about Barak. He's the guy who, um, he brought Deborah on the mission of the battle. And, and, and Deborah, she was the one, she was a prophetess. And she said, now look, Barak, if you bring me in on this mission, 
You won't get the glory, I'll get the glory. It's the story of the, of the Hebrews' defeat of the Canaanites led by Sisera under the prophetic leadership of Deborah and the military leadership of Barak. And here's Barak asking a woman to help him, a prophetess who says to him, now you need to understand, you bring me in this, you're not going to get any of the glory. And Barak uh, gets put in the hall of faith. What about Jephthah, the second guy in that verse 32? He's the guy who's, um, who's kicked out by his family. No one wants him. And he eventually comes back and leads Israel to victory. This man, he's born of a prostitute. And for whatever reason, God decides to highlight him. And then also, listen, that verse is Samson. Samson, why him? His entire life is a train wreck until that final prayer of his life. And so Bethesda, here's three guys in this hall of faith that God chooses to highlight, and I wouldn't have picked any of them, and I, I doubt you would have either. I would have passed right over them. Now, David's on the list. We get that. That's easy. Any of us would have included him. Samuel's on the list. We would have included him. Not a word fell to the ground. He was used by God all over the Old Testament. We get that. But these three guys, Barak, Jephthah, and Samson, I, 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 just, I just don't understand that. My verse would have said, you know, Gideon, David, and Samuel, and that's it. But I have to say again, church, I thank God that he doesn't see things or see people the way we do. Aren't you glad? I am. That God saw something in you when others might have just passed you on by. Can I just ask this? Aren't you glad today God saved you? And that he didn't pass you by. He saw something in you. God has eyes that see right to the very heart of people. His eyes have better than 20-20 vision. So I have to admit to God that I don't really see this list as he does. I don't get it. His highlights are clearly not mine, which means this. It means I'm the one has to, who has to do the digging to see why, why our highlight lists are so very different. So here's what I want to do for the next just few minutes. We're going to dig into these three and just see what's there. All three of these stories of the three men I've mentioned take place in the book of Judges. So find the book of Judges in your Bible where we're going to find all three of these stories. And we're going to have to identify what about them, what was the faith that they expressed that got God's attention, that he got his highlighter out, and he said, put those boys in the hall of faith. I think we can learn something here. I just, I didn't get it, but obviously God sees it differently. So find judges. Let's go first to chapter 4. Let's just take a quick peek at this. Barak is the military leader. And Deborah is the judge. Israel is in a serious situation. The Canaanites have oppressed them severely for 20 years. Jabin was the enemy king that was coming against them. And not only coming against them, but he has the sophistication, Jabin does, of weaponry that was unheard of at this time. Not just chariots, but if you look in Judges chapter 4, the Bible says iron chariots. And not just iron chariots, but 900 iron chariots. So here's Barak, who's called to lead the Israelites through this thing. And 
Before he does anything, what does he do? He calls upon this woman named Deborah, who is a prophetess, and he says to her, Deborah, I need your help in this. I need you to help me get through this thing. And Deborah's response to Barak is in verse 9 of chapter 4 of Judges. Let's look at it. Very well, she replied. I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. And here's the part of this that I find so incredibly interesting. Wouldn't you have thought that once the battle was won and Deborah did all that she did, we would have put her in the hall of faith? Why wasn't it her name that we read in verse 32 of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? But it didn't happen that way. God put Barak in there instead. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the faith of this man that gets him into Hebrews chapter 11? Well, the faith that I think this man has is this. He has no problem with Deborah getting the glory. Because for Barak, by the example of his life, of what we read in Judges, it doesn't matter who gets the glory. It's not a matter of us. But what matters is that God wins the battle. That's all that mattered to him. And I think there is a faith in a man or a woman who can honestly say, I don't need a title. I don't need a position. I don't have to be on staff. As long as the kingdom of God wins this thing, that's really all that matters here. I think about this moment when he expresses himself this way. And he employs for her help. And he asked her to come and help him. You know, folks, there's just times in your life when everything else gets stripped away. And you've got to count, look at what really matters. Sometimes our pride causes us to make certain decisions or, or keeps us within certain bounds. And then something will happen that will just bust that pride wide open. And suddenly, you don't care anymore. We've got to do what needs to be done. I'm thinking of an example, but it has to do with childbirth, and I'm going to leave it alone and leave it out of the picture. It just came to my mind. But it went like this. <laughs> it's, I'm trying to think of a tasteful way to tell this. I'll have to pray about that and get back with you. Let me just say this. When pain hits in childbirth, as I'm told, I know I don't understand it. I get that. You don't care what happens. You just need to get that baby out is all that matters, okay? Rip that sheet off. Do whatever you've got to do. All pride, all concern goes away. Am I right, ladies? Just whatever it takes to get that baby born is all that matters. My point, I have no idea why I thought of that just now. <laughs> My point in all of that is this. We'll be deleting that part from the video. My point in all that is this. We all face situations that literally bring us to the core of who we are. Bring us to that which really matters. And we will, we will in those moments, if we're wise, we will let all pride fall away. 
We will let all encumbrances fall away. It really doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Our image can fall away. We've got to do what we've got to do to get the thing done. And that's what I see in the faith of Barak here. Okay, so I don't get any glory. What matters is Israel's in trouble. And we're about to be defeated. And I see a woman who has something to offer here to help us. And so as long as God gets the glory, then who cares whose name is on the list? That's all that matters. And there's something about that kind of faith which says this. It's not about me. It's not about whether I have the microphone or not. It's not about whether I'm the one singing the solo or not. I'm meddling now, okay? But I'm very qualified to address that subject. The issue is it's not about us, church. It's about whether or not God is getting all the glory. That's what matters. Whether or not God is the one being honored. Can I get an amen to that today? It was just a few days ago that Becky and I heard T.D. Jakes say this so profoundly. He was talking about singers. And he said this. He said, some people, I can't do it. I wish I could do it like he did. Nobody can talk like T.D. Jakes. Some people sing for the stage. And some people sing for the Savior. And you can tell the difference. Some people preach for the stage. And some people preach for the Savior. And you can tell the difference, can't you? I've told Pastor Brent when he came on staff here. I said, you know what? Bethesda is a very discriminating, discerning congregation. And they'll know the minute something happens that is not really of God. They will know that. And that's was, been my experience over these many decades that I have been here. The maturity and the... the um, discernment of this congregation is so acute and so strong, and I'm thankful to be a part of a congregation who isn't just interested in buying the superficial or the surface, but they want something that is real and absolutely honors and glorifies the name of the Lord Jesus in all that happens. And somebody say amen to that. But you know what, church? We may not like to admit it, but it's still true. There's always something inside of us that wants to be recognized. It's just part of human nature. There's something inside of us that needs the undergirding of a title or, or, or to be seen or to be noticed in this situation or, or that situation. Happens to, happens to all of us. In just a few weeks, we're going to get to enjoy the splendor and majesty of what we refer to in the church as a season of Advent where we celebrate the coming of Christ to the earth or better known to us as Christmas. And our choir and orchestra, it was announced just a minute ago, will lead us in two glorious nights of music ministry under the leadership of Pastor Brent and Janice Brunson. I know how to pray for them. I was responsible for that task for 33 Christmas seasons. You're on number six, young man. You're on number six. You got a ways to go. And you're doing it extremely well, I have to say. Trust me. When you've, when you've dealt with more than three decades of singers and talent and musicians... You learn very quickly how to easily identify those that are there for the stage and those that are there for the Savior. I don't know about you. I could care less about the, about the stage. All I'm interested in is honoring the Savior. Is that true for you as well? But at the end of the day, folks, all that matters is that it's God who gets all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. That's what matters, and that was the faith of this man, Barak. It was enough faith that God looked at that. It looked like an incidental thing to everybody else. You and I can read that in Judges and slide right past it. But God would, no. That kind of faith, put him in the hall of faith. 
in Hebrews 11. It's the faith of Barak that looks like this. Hey, I don't care, Deborah. Doesn't matter. Let them honor you. The issue is we need to win this battle. And I think that kind of faith that God is highlighting here, that's what got him into the hall of faith. And he's saying this. It doesn't matter whose name is on the calling card, whose name is on the office, whose name is on the pamphlet, whose name is first, who gets top billing. Let's just be clear. As believers in Jesus, there is only one person who gets the glory, and the rest of us are just honored to even get to be here. That's the faith of Barak. So maybe somebody else did get the solo. Something starts to creep in you that says, you know what, Pastor Brent really should have picked me for that. He has no idea how terrific I sound when I sing that in my bathroom. (laughs) Can we just say it straight out like this? Who cares who has the microphone as long as Jesus is exalted? Let's be clear about that today. I would have never highlighted Barak. But God did. And he says there's faith in that man. Let's look at the second guy. He's from another story we find still in the book of Judges. Turn to chapter 11 and you'll find it. Let's take a quick look at another guy who made it to the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. This guy is Jephthah. Now we learn from Barak that it's all about Jesus receiving the glory. Then we jump into Jephthah. I don't want you to turn there right now, but I want to remind you of something that took place in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 that's going to help, help us understand this point here. Jesus was about to do his first resurrection miracle in Mark 5. It was the little daughter of Jairus that had died. And on the way to the home of Jairus, Jesus stops to heal the woman with the issue of blood. She found him in the crowd and I perceive that healing has, a virtue has come, gone from my body. And then he makes his way to the house to heal that little girl, having received the message that she has died. Jesus says, oh, she's not dead. She's merely asleep. She's just asleep. And then at that moment, Jesus does something that kind of messes the disciples up. Now, I, I want you to get a visual with this on me. Come, put yourself outside the, the house of Jairus. And just be standing there watching what's going on because Jesus looks at the disciples and he says this. He says, guys, we are about to raise the dead. Imagine that moment. If you're a disciple of of Jesus, this is what you've lived for. But he looks and you know something incredible is about to happen. And he looks at all of them and he says, so let's go in the room and let's raise this young girl from the dead. Hallelujah. And I get to be a part of that. Wonderful. He says, come on. Let's go. And they start to walk in the house. He goes, oh, stop. How about just Peter, James, and John? Now, be honest with me. How would you feel if you were one of the other nine? You would have been ticked off just like I would have been. I might have said, first of all, can you imagine after they walk in the house? I bet there was a little bit of discussion going on outside. Are those the only three names he knows? Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Raising the dead, Peter, James, and John. Just imagine that moment when when Jesus says, you nine 
stay out here. You three, come with me. We're going in to raise the dead. I promise you there was some talk going outside. But if it's all about Jesus getting the glory, then who cares which side of the door you are on? Now, Jephthah. He was on the wrong side of the door. Jephthah was the product, here's what I want you to understand about him, of a father having an adulterous relationship one night with a prostitute. You'll find it in Judges chapter 11. The Bible tells us that Jephthah's father, Gilead, actually had a wife who had borne him several sons. Jephthah had the same daddy as those other boys, but his mother was a prostitute. And so... The story went like this. All the sons born to Gilead and his wife, when they grew, grew up, they drove Jephthah off the land, letting him know that he would receive no inheritance from his father because his mother had been a one-night stand for their daddy. Uh, Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. Remember that. He was the son of Gilead. But his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons. And when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So here's a young man being rejected by his family. Some of you know what that feels like. He's been rejected for something over which he had absolutely no control. It was a, simply a one-night fling. He's the son of a father's mistake. And verse 3 says this. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. In other words, here's how we would say that today. He fell into the gangs, okay? You going to treat me like this? I'm out of here. You going to do this? I'm gone. And then, who do you think comes in to challenge and threaten Israel? Not the Canaanites this time, but another group from Ammon. You can read it in, in Judges 11. The Ammonites come in and they start attacking Israel. And Israel does not know what to do. But guess who they have to go back to for help? And who they need to come and be the leader for their team. Do you remember what we read in verse 1 of this chapter? It said, Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. They had to call back the brother that they hated. They had to call back the brother that they had kicked out. The guy whom they held responsible for being the son of a prostitute and not their own mother. Now, so where does faith enter into this? Jephthah, think about this for a second, is now not only called upon to forgive but get ready to, for this because you're about to see the second level of faith. Not only called upon to forgive, and that's hard enough for all of us. Not only called upon to forgive, but to fight for the very people who had wronged him. That God was looking down from heaven. He saw exactly what happened. And God said, put that boy in the hall of faith. Because that's not fight against them who had been so ugly to him, but fight for them. 
Help those who have hurt you the most to win, to prosper, to succeed. You know what I call that? I call that forgiveness on steroids. Because the truth is this. Most of us don't forgive. Most of us put people on probation. We've talked about that before. Because probation says this. You don't have to go to jail, but I'm watching you. Well, I forgive you, I suppose. I think I have to do that, but I'm watching you. Now, I, I, I know that forgiveness messages are not very popular. Most of you would prefer that I talk about something else. But I just want to remind us all today that it was the Lord Jesus who said, not only do I want you to forgive, but I'm asking you to do it 70 times 7. And it was Peter at that moment that said, oh, God, increase our faith. And it does take faith, not only to forgive, but it takes even more faith to fight for those who have wronged you. So how do you fight for those who've, who've you've forgiven, those who have wronged you? You fight for them by praying for them. I'm going to tell you, I've got a list of folks that I pray for that have not always been my friends, that haven't always done what I thought was right. But God has required of me that I pray for them. You fight for them by praying for them. You fight for them by embracing them, even though they are the very ones who sent you out and who kicked you out. I'm talking about the ones who spoke against you, the ones who said nasty things about you, the ones who hurt you at the core of your being and the place where you were the most sensitive and vulnerable. They attacked you there. And yet, what we see in this example, not only was he called upon to forgive them, but then to go fight for those who had wronged him. And God says, that's faith. Put that boy in the hall of faith for generations to come, for millennia to come, to read about him. I think if his name would have been brought before you and me for an inductee to the hall of faith, we probably would have said, eh, he was the son of a prostitute, product of a one-night fling, then he got all caught up in gangs. Let's, no, let's cross him off the list. But the Lord said, that's faith. So Barak was inducted because he didn't need to receive any of the glory. It was happy for Deborah to have it as long as they won the battle. It's all that mattered. He didn't matter who got the glory. Jephthah was inducted because he not only exampled forgiveness for us, but he demonstrated how to take forgiveness to the next level by then going on to fight for the ones he'd forgiven, the very ones who had wronged him. Why would someone be willing to exhibit faith at that level? It's because that is exactly, church, what Jesus has done for you and me. It's exactly the very Jesus whose name you and I have taken in vain. The very Jesus who we have ignored and lived our own lives selfishly. The very Jesus that some of us have walked away from. The same Jesus who forgives us, the glory of it is this, that same Jesus not only forgives us, but he fights for us because the scripture says he ever lives to make intercession. He's fighting for you today. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't forgive you and say, now I'm watching you. I've got you on probation. He forgives us and remains committed to us. Bless the Lord until we land on heaven's shore. That's the commitment of the Lord Jesus to us. That's how much he fights for you. Somebody say hallelujah to that today. That's the Jesus we serve, and it's amazing. Let me finish with Samson. Samson also got inducted into the hall of faith, and we find his story in Judges 16. And I think the best way I can 
illustrate this is to tell you a story a pastor friend of mine has let me know that he, this pastor friend of mine, knew a retired hockey player who was a goalie. Actually, he played for the Boston Bruins. And my pastor friend asked this retired goalie one day, he says, I know you've got all that padding on, but when that puck comes flying at you at 100 miles per hour, does it hurt? The goalie said, every time. Every time. And then the goalie said to my pastor friend, he says, but you know what hurts worse? He said, there's a little red light right behind me. It's attached to the frame of the goal. And every time that I blow it, thousands of people watch that red light go on. Now, for those who don't know hockey, and I know very little about it, I, I, my eyes aren't fast enough to follow the puck wherever it goes. But every time the opposing team scores a goal, there's a little red light attached to the frame of the goal, and has that, that light goes on to say that that goal has passed the critical line that says the, the other team has scored a goal, and it, and it goes on. And all the thousands of people either hate you for blocking the goal, or thousands hate you because you just blew it. And that goalie told my pastor friend, he says, every time I blow it, the red light goes on. Now, can you imagine living a life where that's the job you go to? What if at your desk, there was a red light that every time you blew it, it went on? Would you like that? I have a visual of that, like people working in uh, office, you know, where there's cages or what do you call those separate air areas. I should call it something else, I'm sure. And the red light's on a pole, and it turns on, and it goes swishing around so everybody can see it. You missed a form, getting a form turned in just right. Turn that red light on. She blew it again. Yep, he messed up again. Turn the red light on. What if... Um, one of the choir members sang off key <laughs> on one note. And the little red, what if we'd had a little red light on the top of every choir member in the choir today? And if one of them sang a wrong word or they were a little bit flat or a little bit sharp on one note, that little light went off. Oh, look at that. She was out of tune. Well, that's the kind of job this goalie had. Every time he blew it, the red light turned on. And you know what, church? That's essentially the life that Samson had. And almost anybody, you hear any message preached by any preacher on Samson, and typically it's about how he blew it. I just have a visual in my own mind about him being in heaven, looking down, going, well, there that preacher goes. There's another message. Can't they leave it alone? How many times do I have to hear how bad I've blown it? Can we not move on? Can they not say anything nice? Had a prostitute, didn't listen to his parents. Cut your hair, don't cut your hair. Red light goes on constantly. But when Samson comes to the end of his days, here's what God does. God says, put him in the hall of faith. God got his highlighter out. He said, put him in the hall of faith. Why? Because Samson redeemed himself with one prayer at the end. God, I've messed up. God, I've blown it. And with that one phrase, his hair began to grow again. 
And his approach to God was basically this. If you've ever heard me before, please hear me now, oh God. And here's something that is so critical that we understand about walking with God. It is not so much about how you start, but it is about how you finish. Did you hear me this morning? That's why you could be in this room today saying, Pastor Dan, I had such a bad start and I'm still stumbling and I'm still messed up. Samson messed up his entire life. A few victories here and there, but messed up. But when he was down in his moment of utter weakness, you can read about it in Judges, he calls upon God and God answers him and makes it clear. Whether you come at the beginning of the day or whether you come at the end of the day, according to a parable we all know, everyone gets the same reward. And God said, put Samson in the hall of faith just as if he had been a man of faith his entire life. That's the kind of God we serve, and somebody ought to be thankful for that today. In fact, not only put him in the hall of faith, put him next to David. Man after God's own. Put him next to Gideon. Put him right next to Samuel. And here's the glory of God. Even if you started off bad in life, even if the last two decades have been terrible for you, on this day, in this moment, my dear friend, you can cry out to God today, on this very day, and everything can be turned around for you when you call on the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We have a redeeming God. Let's stand together, church.